Howdy, friends. Thanks for tuning in to the best of 2020 True Grit podcast, where I've attempted to pick a few highlights, highlights that got a ton of feedback from you guys. This podcast has had thousands and thousands of downloads, and that totally blows me away. So I thought it'd be cool to weave some cool segments together into one episode. If you're like me, you're super relieved that 2020 is over. It has launched some businesses into the stratosphere and has completely crippled others. But I think we are learning so many valuable lessons along the way, and I'm actually trying to slow down enough to metabolize what I've learned. It's been a joy launching this podcast and interviewing over 25 top performers this year. And just as a refresher, the objective of this episode of this podcast is to is to normalize the grit and fortitude it takes to build a business. I'm trying to build a bridge between the salty old business builders with the up and comers grinding it out every day to put food on the table. Doing anything important is going to take some serious effort and this podcast celebrates this effort. And I'm basically getting some free coaching along the way, right in front of you from experts, uh, local experts that you probably know, people you might even see at the grocery store. Uh, My desire is for you to be able to take some of the wisdom I'm extracting from these awesome guests and use it to make your mark on the world. So please send me an email if something resonates. Um, The feedback loop is much appreciated. Before I begin, because many of you are my friends and colleagues, I thought I'd give you a super short update on what I've been up to. Um, 2020 had a bunch of new beginnings for me. I started blogging at the beginning of the year, and I've been emailing my post to you guys pretty much every week. And I never thought that writing would be such a disciplined activity. It's, It's taken a lot of effort, but Your feedback has given me the fuel to continue, and I've been so happy and appreciative uh, by all the emails and phone conversations I've had with many of you as a result of these posts, and it's, it's why I write them. It's to stir the pot between your ears. So if something I write punches you in the nose, maybe warms your heart, or maybe even frustrates you, please reach out. For sure, send me an email, send me a text, give me a call. I love hearing from you. Um, And I actually thought it was pretty funny that some people thought I had paid a service to write these posts. Um, And I was like, what the heck? I I wasn't sure if if I should be, you know, flattered or offended. Um, But no, I do write these blog posts all myself, uh, and I'm actually mostly writing to myself. So if you're not on the email list, go to the web, to to my website, uh, triggeritpodcast.com or craigcouch.com, or send me an email or text if you've got my name and number in your phone, and I'll add you. Um, But, you know, since I haven't really seen you guys or talked to you guys out in the wild uh, in 2020, because of all the lockdown stuff, um, I thought I'd give you a, a little update on business. Um, and, you know, many of the people that listen to this podcast are in the real estate business, and we are all so thankful to be deemed essential. And this year, I just, gosh, I got a shout out to 
you know, and high five the most brilliant team of real estate and finance, uh, finance experts imaginable, uh, in our cluster of companies. Um, these are just amazingly brilliant people. Uh, and dwell real estate grew to become the largest independent brokerage in Tarrant County. Pretty dang incredible. And Dwell Homes built a ton of houses. Casa Dueño Dueño sold more owner finance houses in the history of the company. Um, and we've been in business for almost 20 years. Uh, Avocet Ventures is stronger than ever. Um, and Merit Mortgage, um, a mortgage brokerage, set all kinds of records this year. Um, and this month, I launched a new company called Clutch Lending. And Clutch is a hard money lending company that helps real estate investors uh, by financing their fix and flips. And it's, you know, and my my thought is it's a perfect complement to the other companies and will be quite the adventure. And something a little more personal, um, and that's my wife, Jennifer. She is changing the world by teaching women to drink less or not at all. A few years ago, um, and most of you know this, but a few years ago, she started a movement called Sober Sis and has helped over 10,000 women through her online program. She has a 21-day alcohol reset, and it is just blowing up. I am so freaking proud of her. Uh, and she stepped into her superpower, her realm of genius for sure. And as you know, she is way cooler than me. You can check her out and see what she's up to on Instagram at, uh, at SoberSys or SoberSys.com. So it's time to jump in. Um, this episode is sort of the best of 2020. It's totally subjective, but based on the incredible feedback I received on some of these guests, um, it was really hard to pick because there's pure gold in every episode, but I didn't want this to be four hours long, and <laughs> neither did you. Uh, so I had to pare it down. So uh, this this particular episode would be a good one to share with your friends because it gives them a sense of what this podcast is all about and what the mission is. So let's dive right in. This first episode uh, segment is Lee Long, and Lee is my marriage counselor and personal coach. Lee and I have been working together for many years, and I count him as one of the key members of my circle of excellence. He has helped revolutionize my marriage and my ability to grow and scale my businesses. So enjoy this 10-minute segment where we discuss my personal marriage journey with Lee Long. We've learned um, over the years that, and, and just you know, the recovery time from the blow up, right. To, to reconnecting, um, and trying to maintain that connection is much shorter now that we have the dang tools. Like we've got the tools to know how to fight fair. We also have learned how to regulate our emotions, uh, not to stuff them, but to regulate them and identify them and just say, you know, Jennifer, I'm super pissed off right now. I need, I need to talk about this in about an hour you know, is a much more productive approach than just blowing up on her as I did before. Um, and so it's those little things they, that, that you taught me that really, um, really has helped me in my business as well, <laughs> believe it or not. Um, because it was not a journey 
it was not a journey on marriage. It was, but it was, it was more of a journey um, for myself. Like you said, right. once I learned to separate it and not look at Jennifer and just say, if she would just change, everything would be fine, which was usually my mantra. I mean, that was, that was kind of the, the approach and turns out that didn't work <laughs> at all. So uh, all of our approach, we all want it to be, you fix, you fix that person. I'm good. I'll wait. Y'all, y'all do your business. Exactly. I think I even said that out loud once. I'm good. (laughs) Once you get better, we'll be fine. (laughs) What were you going to say? I'm sorry. I interrupted you. I I can't confirm or deny. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Well, you know, in in a therapeutic environment, you were always really good um, at allowing me to trip over my own truth. Um, and you were really, you were a really good relationship Sherpa to point a direction at the same time, give me glances of the mirror so I could look myself in the mirror in, in, in proper doses. That's important because I think if you'd have shown me too much of my assholery, for example, it it might've freaked me out and, uh, I might not have come back, but you were able to just do that, um, in little doses, which is really cool. Uh, but in that environment, um, I, I'd like to ask you, if you can, to take off your your therapy hat for a second and and give and do what what I kind of wanted you to do in the first session of therapy, which is to give me some damn advice so I can use it and go on. Um, which it's, <laughs> it's not that effective, but let's do something really fun here. Um, so, if you're going to give a public service announcement to men. And you can complete this sentence. Men, if men would just blank, their relationship with their wife would be much better. (laughs) That's a great question. (laughs) My knee-jerk reaction to that is, if we would just listen. If we would just listen and listen not to fix, listen to know. That's the part. I think that that's true for our marriages. I think that that's true for our kids. I think that's true for our subordinates. I think that's true across the board. We don't need to fix. We need to be with. And I will tell you, you know, I've been doing this for over 20 years and most every woman that I have spoken to, most every wife that I've spoken to has said, if he would just hear me, if he would just know me, fill in the blank with all these wonderful things that they, that they had to say. I think that that that's, that's at the core is if, if I could learn to be empathetic with my wife, if I could learn to hear her, but hear her for the expressed purpose of knowing her better. And if I could be really candid uh, about you specifically, Craig, I would say that that was a big turning point for you is stepping back and learning Jen knowing her better and not knowing her to know, to know how to move her along, along our agenda, so to speak, but it's knowing our wives in an effort to just, 
I mean, to be in awe. I mean, I think about when we, when we met our wives, right? Like, I just remember stepping back and looking at my wife going, I'm going to marry this woman. She had no clue. <laughs> it took me five years to convince her, but I'm going to marry this woman, right? And it's like we would sit and stare at them all, you know, like, oh my gosh, you're the greatest thing. But somehow we lose that and we need to keep that desire and that sense of discovery. Never stop discovering your wife, ever. Because she's changing and growing and, and, and moving through life and having new experiences always be exploring with and exploring her. Well said, discovering her. And, and really, uh, you know, that it, it, this epiphany for me has, has revolutionized my marriage. Mm. Uh, my passion for her, my love for her has evolved back to where, where it should be. And I think it's 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 a beautiful thing, and and I think the the big move. You're right. It was me learning to hear and listen and understand, and not try to. The way you put it just nails me to the wall, actually, and that is my agenda, because mm-hmm. my hard driving attitude is very problematic. Because I have a I have an agenda, and if you're in the way of my agenda, it's a big problem. Uh, and that is the wake I put off a lot uh, with the people I love dearly. And so that uh, I'm thankful for that. Yeah. Yeah. It uh, changed my life. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for trusting me. This is my show. Damn it. I shouldn't be crying on my own show. we're gonna edit that crap out oh my gosh jeez okay so all right psa to women if women would just blank their relationship with their husband would be much better you know that's a good question (laughs) um It's it's interesting because it's a, it's a it's a completely different approach in my opinion. But if 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 a man believes that he is important and and seen as competent um, as a whole, I, I think that you know it's the whole feeling respected mm. and desired. Mm. And I think that as, as women can look at, there is a, there's kind of a, a movement. I don't know if that's the right word for it, but where men are kind of seen as adult children. And I, I don't know about you, but I don't want to be seen as a child. I, I want to be seen as, as a, as a, a warrior, as a guy who's going to do battle, as a guy who's, you know, doing hard things. I mean, truth be told, part of the reason why I hopped on that treadmill was to, to say that I did it was to, 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 you know, to, to conquer, I can do hard things. You know, I I enjoy that kind of stuff. And I think having a a wife who looks at you and says, I I saw that hard thing. And I think that's awesome. 
And, and I really respect you and admire you. And I think you're pretty great because of it. Mm. And I think that if as, as women, the thing that you can offer your husband is seeing him as a grown man. Now you may struggle with that because oftentimes uh, <laughs> you, you <laughs> have to really look for those moments where we're grown men. But I think in the opportunities that you can, I think if you can see your husband as a grown man and not as an adult child, I think it, I think it offers a lot in the marriage. Yeah. I think that, um, I will say that, um, at least for Jennifer, and I don't know if that's, this is normal for, for, for all women, but I will say that she responded to, she reacted, um, I was the, in a way, the catalyst for my own desire for respect. Well, I hope you enjoyed that segment uh, with Lee Long. What a stud. I mean, the guy is just incredible. Um, this next seg- segment is uh, really cool because it's basically a middle-aged, well-to-do white guy having an awkward conversation with a black man. (laughs) And he's a friend of mine, and his name is Dante Williams. And uh, Dante uh, started a really cool not-for-profit called Community Frontline, uh, who has a really cool mission, is making a big difference um, in the black community right here in our backyard. He also is an entrepreneur and owner of Dig contracting. Uh, he's been doing that for 15 years. Great guy. So uh, without further ado, enjoy this part of uh, a part of our conversation uh, with Dante Williams. I'm struggling with the narrative in our country because it feels like it's just, it's just, uh, you know, with the media and all the stuff, it just feels like it's inflammatory. It feels like there's more anger and outrage um, than the data would point to. And so what, what are your thoughts on that? Like, it's like, there just seems to be, there's one thing to protest, but then there's another thing to, to riot. Um, right. and so I'd love to hear your comments on, on that. Right. So, so I think, so, so there's, I mean, that's a, a very, uh, nuanced question, right? Mm-hmm. So there, there's some definitely things to get into there. Um, but I would say in terms of, so I think what people don't see mm-hmm. is it's not just the shootings, right? So there, there's so much more that black, black men and black women deal with when, when interacting with police that, that never gets brought to light, right? So I think when we talk about data and we talk about, then we can't leave it at the shootings. The shootings are the extreme. Right. Right. And, and and these things have been going on for a very long time. Right. So even if we just look at uh, what just happened with the March on Washington, 57 years, and they were protesting and demonstrating for the exact same things 57 years ago. Right. And so I think if we if we just kind of take that lens of it and say, OK, the, you know, there's a group of people who've been saying and doing the same thing for at least 57 years. Right. That just at least let's just say 57. And we're still having a conversation. Now things are, you know, being recorded. Things have been talked about. I think that the anger, the the protest, and I think the ride, the rides have been minimal from what I, from what I know. 
uh, it's been more protesting, uh, but there have been, you know, some things that could be classified as riots. But the protesting in in and of itself has been largely peaceful. But again, I think there are two different perspectives we're looking at, right? So I had a had a pretty good conversation with a group of white guys and some black guys, but I think there is a big difference in how um, just the white community and black community deal with police, right? So I think and how police deal with them in, in a sense of, you know, in a white, and this is just from this conversation that I had, and in, in a white man's or white woman's perspective, hey, if you did something wrong, or if the police stop you or frisk you or whatever they do, you did something wrong. You deserve whatever happened, because that's typically how it happens in a white community. Right. So like there is no reason for me to really go and challenge that because yeah, if you did something in our community, you probably deserve to get whatever came your way. And so there's normally why there's not a lot of protesting or, you know, uproar when a white person gets shot and killed by the police or when something bad's happened to a white person by police. There's not a whole lot of things that happens in a white community versus in a black community. That's the normal dealing, right? There's always something that happens in just the history of policing. Um, that's that's just kind of we're, we're like our interactions are very much so typically bad, right? In, in a sense of not going in a, in a way to where um, like that should have happened that way, hmm. right? If I if I get pulled up, so so example I give, I was pulled over um, for speeding. Right. Um, and the guy, the officer at the time, he told me, you know, and this was this matter of fact, this was uh, we were taking some kids back from from the Junior Olympics. And I was, you know, God, like, great. Yeah, I was speeding. I think that, you know, yep, cool. I, I should get a ticket. I guess if you want to give me a ticket, give me a ticket. Um, but he came back and was like, you know, since since you were uh, respectful and, and, you know, kind. And he says some other, some words, you know, I'm just going to let you off with a ticket as if there was something else there that could have been done outside of the ticket. Right. So it's kind of like those situations in another situation, we get pulled over for, um, disturbing the peace, um, for loud music in a car. Mm-hmm. Uh, but just so happened, we don't have a radio in the car for loud music. So, uh, you know, it's kind of like, so while we pulled over and there's obviously, cause the radio had just got stole out the car. <laughs> so we're like, you pulled us over for what? Like, what do we do? Um, so, you know, it, it's things like those type of interactions are not really talked about or even brought in. I mean, it can get a, a lot more aggressive than that. Or, mm-hmm. um, so I think the, the interactions happen a lot more frequently or things that are said or done, um, in black communities are very different in white communities. I think that's a, I think we have to start kind of at that perspective and understanding, you know, the interactions can be very different depending on the community and the person you're talking to. And I think by and large, uh, that's a huge difference yeah. um, in the conversation right now. That's yeah. No question about it. I mean, it's, it's, uh, I, I, uh, when I get pulled over, uh, I never have a thought in my mind. I'm like, I know I'm, I'm getting pulled over. I might get a little frustrated because I was only barely speeding or something, but it's like, right. I know he's not going to ask me to get out of the car. Like the chances of that are in my mind's in my mind is like zero. Like he's not going to ask me to get out of the car. He's not going right. to ask me to, 
you know, uh, do anything other than license and registration, right? Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm betting that a lot of this anger um, and frustration from the black community is coming from that accrual effect where things are just kind of stacking up and adding up. And now mm-hmm. in our world, there's video to prove it. Like, um, and so that's, I, I'm guessing that's kind of, is that what you're saying is that it's like, it's the, it's really the unspoken vibe that the black community gets from the police that, um, that is disconcerting to you. Right. Yeah. And, and, and that's very much so what it is, 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 is one that one is building has been building. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's been going, like I said, for a long time. Uh, but it also up, up until, you know, the pandemic and this year and everything, now that everyone has kind of stopped mm-hmm. that it's really been put on, you know what I'm saying? The, the forefront of everyone's mind. Right. Because we really have nothing else to do, but look at it. Right. But <laughs> there's been a, there's been a, I mean, for years, man, even here in, even here in the city of Fort Worth, right there, there were things that happened um, as recent as last year with a Tatiana Jefferson. Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, things happened with that, but it died down because, you know, everyone, you were still working, you still had sports to kind of take you away. You had, you know, it was so much other things going on that even here in our city, um, when a Tatiana Jefferson was killed, you know, people didn't really grab a hold to start speaking about the issue until it was George Floyd. Right. And mm-hmm. so I think, you know, there because we're so distracted and then, like I say, just the larger majority community, you don't have to deal with that because it's not necessarily. Um, and I think it's key kind of what we're doing now, the relationship and the conversations. If you don't have a, a good relationship with with someone from either side. Mm-hmm. To be able to break some of the barriers and have some real dialogue, it's hard for you to even begin to understand why that matters, right? Or why yeah. that should be a thing. Right. Well, I hope, I, that, I hope that makes sense. It does. <laughs> it does. It's just really, it's really difficult. And, you know, you think about the the data and just, you know, if, if I, or if you were a police officer, let's just say you were a police officer and you were pulling someone over, uh, I know for me, um, I would be a little more nervous if it was a 20-year-old black man versus a 20-year-old white man that I was going to get some pushback. Um, would you agree with that assessment? Um, I wouldn't. Okay. I wouldn't. I wouldn't because... Again, so and this is just so. So this is an I statement, and this is I statement from conversations I've had, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so one, being in the industry I'm in, construction, and then two, being able to kind of build relationships throughout with diverse groups of people. When I have kind of that conversation, like, hey, how many, you know, growing up, what were your interactions with the police? What did you buy? Shoot, I would say 80, 90, 95 percent of the time. It's the white guys who are doing crazy things when they're stopped by the police who are doing and saying the most. And like all the black guys like, no, nah, man, I'm, you know, hands on the steering wheel, hands up. Like, I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm yes, sir. No, sir. Uh-huh. Uh, so so like that, like for me, so me knowing that and me hearing so many stories from white guys and them just railing against police, cussing them out, talking crazy. I had one dude tell me, hey, man, you know, at was one point, you know, I, I took the steering wheel off of my truck 
threw it out the window, and I don't know how he, it was all—it was it was messed up or whatever. But he said, man, I took my steering wheel out, and I just threw it out. And the officer looked at me and said, "Man, just go home. You're, you know," and followed him to the house. Well, that was some pretty uh, hard-hitting, raw topics we covered, and the entire interview is pretty cool. So if you've not heard it, uh, heard the interview with Dante Williams, go check that one out because. Uh, we cover all kinds of bases um, that I've actually always wanted to to cover. Um, so I hope uh, you enjoyed that segment. So next up is Elise Dickerson, and she is a superwoman, uh, incredible, incredible leader. Uh, she's a CEO and co-founder of EOSERA, which is a female-led biotech company. Um, she used to be at Alcon. Um, and she's got some pretty incredible stories uh, to tell for sure about her journey of moving from a big company to owning her own deal. Um, pretty awesome transitions there. Um, so I hope you enjoy this section of our interview. I have a, a question for you. So I have, I have over 50 women um, that work in for my cluster of real estate companies and as the founder, um, what are some specific ways that I can honor their femininity and at the same time honor their work? What would you, what would you say to me about that? I mean, my, the initial thing that comes to mind is that we just want to be treated the same. We don't want to be called out for being a woman. We don't want to be, we just want to like be respected, be heard, you know, and, and, um, and I think the best thing you can do as a founder or leaders of company, especially men is to make it known like verbally on a regular basis. Like we have a not, no tolerance, you know, um, environment here. And if you feel like you have been uh, harassed or mistreated, I need to know as a leader of the company, I need to know, and I want you to know, I'm going to listen. Hmm. And because he, here's what happened to me and most women is we're afraid to say anything because history has taught us that we become the problem. And so knowing, and I love the book, um, written by um, this, it's called Trailblazer. It's written by the founder of Salesforce. He talks about in there um, how some, some women that he trusted in his organization came to him to talk about women being underpaid. And the most valuable thing he did, because he didn't believe it at first. Mm. Um, he's like, that's not how my companies run, right? I mean, that, that can't be true. But he listened and when he actually dug into the information, he's like, they're right. Hmm. That's not the kind of company I want, but they're right. Um, and so I think being the kind of leader that will just be open mm-hmm. um, is the best thing you can do. Because people just want to be heard and want to be protected. And, you know, we expect our superiors to protect us, but that's not typically what happens. Yeah. And as the leader of... Salesforce, for example, um, he had no, it sounds like from your description, because I've not read that book. Um, 
is that he had good intentions and he also had a level of assumption um, without actually expecting, uh, inspecting what he expected. Uh, and then when he found out the data actually shows that they were right about that, how do you think that kind of sort of sneaks its way into to companies? It's subconscious. It's, um, it, I mean, some of it's blatant, but some of it is just subconscious. And he talks about later in the book, he, they spent millions of dollars to right size their their pay, right, and make it make it equitable across the board. And so they ended up paying women more and making sure everybody was in line. Within two years, it was back out of line, and men were getting paid more than women. And so he now has an annual review of everyone's pay across the organization. And he shares it because he says, look, all companies need to be doing this. Mm-hmm. Even though we think we're doing the right thing, things creep in because you've got people in your organization making decisions right. and people have, you know, unconscious bias. Yeah. Um, and it just, it just happens. Yes. I don't think necessarily anybody has ill intent mm-hmm. on some of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It just happens. Yeah. And I think, I think it is unconscious. Uh, but I also think for myself, and I can speak directly to the thoughts that cross through my mind when I'm interviewing a woman. You said a minute ago, we just want to be treated the same. However, the truth is you're not. And what I mean by that is I'm not talking about capabilities. I'm not talking about intelligence or ability. But you, you, you know the thought, and I just, I just need some feedback from you because, because, because mm-hmm. this is a thought that crosses my mind sometimes when when I'm interviewing um, a woman, and that is, you know, how many kids does she have? How old are they? Um, you know, I'm, I'm also kind of wanting to know about her marriage and her relationship, all these things, like those things go through my mind. I think it's probably illegal to ask about them, um, but they do go through my mind. And it's because, you know, I've, I've been married for 25 years and I know there's a mama bear element to my wife, right? So I know that she is going to put, because she carried these kids in her womb, right? Physically that she has, um, um, and I'm speaking for my wife here. This is just for Jennifer. She, I would, I would guess that if she was sitting here, she would probably nod in agreement. It's probably more difficult for her to compartmentalize motherhood and work um, because of that physical reality of, well, in fact, you are different. And so I guess I'd love you to speak coach me in that line of thinking, because I know you've spent a lot of time thinking about this and I might be completely out of line, but, but I'm just being honest. I think, I think you, I think you are being speaking truth. And I think that's how most men do think. I, I, my initial response is why don't you have that same thought if you were interviewing my husband for a job? Good question. It never crosses your mind, right? Well, and it, the reason it doesn't cross my mind is because I, I would, I would, I'm a fellow man, and my ability to compartmentalize 
the kids is is like a is super easy because I'm like, yeah, just you know, I my empathy thing is pretty low. I'm like, just read some dirt on it, you'll be fine. <laughs> so and it's it's just based on my personal experience and the reality that I'm a guy and I'm just like not that sensitive. Yeah. So I would, I'll give you some other uh, examples. I would, I would sit in uh, meetings where we would be doing uh, succession planning. And again, I'd usually be one of the few females in the room, uh, just because of the level of individuals that had to be in the room for these kind of discussions. And normal discussions would entail, well, he supports a family she has a husband, so let's give the job to him. Interesting. Right? I see from a traditional, if you're in the 1950s and still in that mind frame, I see how that progresses. But if you're, if you're me, mm-hmm. I married somebody that's an art historian, mm-hmm. right? Our, our earning potentials during our life are very different. Um, you know, his earning potentials later in life are much higher than mine early in life. Mine were much higher. And so I was the breadwinner early on. And so when they're saying, well, she has a husband, that doesn't mean the husband is supporting the family. Yes. He's helping support, but it's just, it's just, I think a lot of it is just being conscious that you're having those thoughts. And if you're conscious of them, you can rail them back in and say, okay, you know what? She says she can do the job. She can do the job. She'll figure out that it's not, it's not your responsibility as the boss to figure out how she's going to manage her family. That's her job, right? That's a good reframe it was for me. my job. That's very I was going to hire babysitters. I was going to hire drivers. Mm-hmm. You don't worry about my family. I got them. Mm-hmm. I want this job and I'm going to kick ass in it. There you go. Okay. That's a good reframe. That really... That really helps. (laughs) I didn't know if you were going to jump down my throat. I had no idea. I was like, I'm just going to go ahead and say this and see what it's normal. (laughs) It's normal. And I think men, I think you have to admit it. Yeah. I think admitting it is helpful because it lets other men admit it. And then when you know that thoughts in there, you can say, all right, this isn't what I should be thinking about right now. Mm -hmm. Is she, she up to the job? Yeah. Does she get it? Does she want it? Does she have the capacity? Yes or no? Yep. There you go. That's okay. what, that's why you hired. <laughs> okay. Awesome. Thank you. Elise. That's so great. <laughs> I saved you. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Man, that was a fun, uh, interview with, with Elise. And, uh, she, if you want to, uh, kind of learn more about Elise, um, you can go to earcaremd.com, uh, um, which she's, her, you know, her niche really, um, or what launched her company into the stratosphere was uh ear care product. It's sort of this product that gets the, your earwax out. And <laughs> anyway, uh, if you're like me, the last time I took out my AirPods, I was mortified by what I saw. <laughs> so I actually need to go pick that up at CVS right away. Um, the next segment is with Matthew McDonald. And I've known Matthew McDonald for a very long time. Uh, he is the quintessential leader of leaders. Uh, and a ton of men in Fort Worth are uh, very familiar with 
with him because he uh, has been the leader of BSF forever. Uh, I don't remember how many years, but he's been doing it for a very long time, which just leads hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of men uh, through the Bible uh, year in and year out. Pretty dang awesome. He is an attorney and uh, he's, but he's unique in his uh, law practice because he has a uh, a company called Peacekeeper Works where he helps people not sue each other. <laughs> Basically, he helps people uh, kind of solve the problems on the front end. Um, so enjoy this segment of my interview with Matthew McDonald. And so in my intro, I mentioned that you were a father of four boys. And as of recently, with one now in heaven, will you tell Philip's story? Yeah. Uh, great kid. Um, Philip, three of my boys have hemophilia. And from an early age, Philip um, had complications. He had uh, pain, uh, particularly in a hip. And uh, he was... 27, uh, the hip really started getting bad around 21, 22, where we were looking into surgery. Uh, by the time Philip's 27, we've gone to the best experts and they say, Philip, you're going to have to live with this, this pain. Uh, now to, to complicate that, uh, Philip has been prescribed painkillers to which he gets addicted to. He overcomes mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. Uh, he's 29. He's living in Austin. He has a great new job. And um, we're, we're in contact all the time. He has a small seizure uh, where he says, man, I, I don't know what happened, but I black out for like a minute. Uh, then I come to, goes to the doctor, gets all checked out. And then uh, about three months ago, he has a massive seizure in his sleep. Um, wakes up dead. Um, never, never felt it, never knew it was coming uh, and he was gone. Hmm. And he was the, uh, the third of, of four boys. It's incredible. Um, incredible loss. And, you know, I've got a, I've got a quote here that you sent me, um, recently, um, that that's, uh, by Joni Tata and that says, God, allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. What, what does that mean to you? Well, to give a little background, uh, Joni Tata, uh, I think she was a 17 year old, um, good looking athletic. And she dove into a pool, hit something and she's a paraplegic. Uh, so she's gone through this suffering and had, uh, she knows what she talks about. Um, and for me, um, you really, all of us go through suffering. There's low grade suffering and then there's, you lose a son, um, mm -hmm. things, things of that nature. Uh, and we have to be able, if we don't handle suffering well, we don't handle life well. And for me, I see that God is sovereign. He's in control and he's loving all the time and that he will ordain our suffering. Look at the cross. Hmm. If we could go back 2,000 years ago and look at Jesus, what would we say? 
there's a naked guy hanging on a cross that's been beat up. He looks terrible. His mom is over there and his aunt crying. Uh, none of no followers around him. You, you couldn't think of one good thing. You may know Genesis to Malachi, but you would have a hard time picking out those verses. But that's the greatest victory known to man. He resurrected. He defeated death. That is, we have, everybody in our audience that's listening, we got one thing in common. We're going to die. Hmm. Uh, that's however you want to look at it, that and pay taxes. <laughs> Sorry. That's really not so, funny. <laughs> Sorry. It's okay. So uh, we all have to deal with that. Uh, life has a lot of suffering in it. What is where is God in the midst of it? So you you kind of alluded to the idea that that um, there's two ways of suffering: suffering well and not suffering well. In other words, there in your mind, I'm guessing there's probably a way to do it wrong. Can you speak to that? Yeah. Now I'm not an expert. Philip died three months ago, mm -hmm. uh, so I'm an expert for of three months of grieving. Hmm. Um, and I grieve hard. I cry every day, but I, I, I look around, I read, I know people that have lost kids and I, I try to study who, who does it well, what is the right way to handle this? And I have hope. Uh, I'm Alicia and I are not crumbling. Uh, we're leaning on each other. We're leaning on God. Uh, we're letting friends take care of us. Uh, we're getting on with our lives. Uh, we're both still involved in, in Bible study. Uh, so that's uh, the, the pain that's going to be with us for a while, uh, I'll, forever. Uh, mm. Well, when a friend is suffering, um, you said that you, you just said that you, you really allowed your friends to come towards you and love on you. Um, can you describe what kind of, um, of support f has felt the best to you in the last three months from your friends? Yeah. Yeah. Then, well, one of my consistent prayers before Philip died is that bring me people whose feet I can wash people I can help. And then bring me people who can wash my feet, who can help me. Hmm. And what I have found is that people who show up, uh, the best question I've had so far is tell me about Philip. Um, and let me talk about him. That that's been helpful. And then really everybody that anybody that reaches out, it's appreciated. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that that it, it is. It is it's, that connection is so important and uh and feels just it's woven into the grieving process in a way. And and so you're saying one of your favorite questions is tell me about Philip. Yeah. Because it's, uh, I mean, we've all been, I'm now that guy um, that's lost a kid. And beforehand, when I knew somebody, I didn't know how to approach them. I didn't know what to say. Um, and, and now I know. Mm -hmm. uh, approach them, be the first to speak, tell them you're sorry, say you'd love to hear about Philip, tell me about his life, how's this affecting you, how's, how, are you how are you grieving, what are you doing well, what's not working, what's working. Mm, great. Are there any, are there any things that are counterproductive? Because, you know, people have really great intentions to, to come towards 
and love you while you're suffering. Uh, and then, but, but maybe isn't that helpful. Are there any things that you've experienced, um, you know, without throwing somebody with good intentions under the bus that was less than helpful or maybe counterproductive? Um, I, th- I think you want to be uh, try to be as specific as possible. Try to help people. Uh, the the saying, um, "Hey, if you need anything, just call." Um, that's pr- you know probably not going to take you up on that um, in the beginning. Um, so it's it's better just to show up or or, or call or bring something by because um, that grieving person probably ain't going to reach out. But let me say in that there's no, there's no wrong way to reach out to people. You mm-hmm. just, you just try it. There's nothing that anybody can say to me that can take away this pain. And there's nothing anybody can say to really increase the pain. Um, it's, it's going to be there. So you got a no risk situation. Uh, just jump into it. Yeah. It, 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 yes. And when I heard the news, it, it, did feel risky um, because I, you know, I love you and know you and I'm friends with you. And it was difficult um, to know what to say. And so sometimes that sticks, that sticks me. Sometimes I get stuck because uh, I don't, I, I don't want to make a mistake, you know? Uh, and then, so then the default move is the generality, Right. Hey, I'm here for you. You know, call me if you need anything, <laughs> you know, which seems like a good thing to say. And it seems like a safe thing to say. But I think your words, uh, you're, you're really wise about that because what was most helpful was some specificity. Yeah. 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 That, that helps. That's, you hit the nail on the head. Yeah. Well, that is an incredible example of how to grieve well. Um, so Matthew, thank you for, for telling that story and teaching us, um, not only how to grieve well, but how to come alongside someone who is, uh, is experiencing extreme loss. So my, uh, next segment is with Stacy Danford and she is a, an educational neuroscientist with a master's degree in mind brain education. And it turns out that, um, she's actually been on the Ted talk stage, which is pretty freaking cool. Uh, and she's just all over the place, uh, and lives here locally. Um, but nationally known, um, Stacy has taught me a ton about the difference between our mind and our brain. So enjoy this segment of my interview with Stacy Danford. And one of the, one of the current buzzwords uh, that you hear quite a bit is, is neuroplasticity. Um, you know, which is, you know, there's kind of things that are hardwired maybe, and then there are things that uh, aren't so much. Can you kind of describe and, and teach me a little bit more about why neuroplasticity is important. Yes, it is. Well, when we were kids, you know, we were always told you have as many brain cells as you're ever going to have, you know, don't destroy them. You don't get any more. Well, they now know that's not true. 
and it's neurogenesis. Your brain rebuilds new cells constantly um, up until the day you die. But how you wire those cells is up to you. And that's neuroplasticity. And that's how your brain can change its wiring depending on your thoughts, your habits, and your patterns. So our brains are built for efficiency and they're built to do things quickly. And if it thinks that it knows the pathway you're going to take, it'll just do it for you. And there's research that shows, you know, if you have a habit, your brain fires at the beginning of the habit loop and then it doesn't fire again till the end of the habit loop because it knows all the steps in between. And neuroplasticity is changing that loop by telling your brain, oh, I'm going to take over the loop today. I'm going to show you the way we're going to do this. So that's why building a new habit is so hard because you're not just trying to do a new thing. You're creating a brand new wiring system in your brain. And it's just like a road. I'm from the country and we used to call it riding the ruts. And, you know, when you drive through a pasture, you go down and you create these ruts. Well, the second time you go down, you go back through the ruts. And the third time and the 10th time and the 20th time, well, pretty soon you've got a little road. That's exactly what's happening in your brain. The first time you go down it, it's really difficult. And your brain is like, oh, we're going to connect that. We're going to be happy today. Oh, my God. (laughs) We're usually grumpy and grouchy and we're mad we got up. And so every day you change a habit, you also change a road or a little rut and a wire in your brain. And that's what plasticity is. So you used a, you used a, uh, a descriptor just a second ago. You said uh, you can actually tell your brain. Um, and using that phrase, tell your brain, how do we go about telling our brain what to do? Yeah. That, that's what my degree is, mind-brain education. And when I started school, I thought the mind and the brain were the same thing. And mm-hmm. most people do. But that is the secret. They're not. And your mind is like the software on a computer. And your brain is like the hardware. It's the motherboard and the RAM and the physical mechanisms. And your mind is like the software. It's like Word and PowerPoint and Excel and Photoshop and all those things. So the hardware is no good unless you put the software in it. You can have the greatest speed motherboard that ever existed, but if you don't have any software to run it, it's no good. Same way, you can have a great program in a box ready to put in, but if you don't have some hardware, it's not going to work. So they work simultaneously, but the mind tells the brain how to create the wires, what chemicals to produce. And then the brain does its physical things. And so our thoughts are our mind and we are telling our brain, which chemicals to produce, which wires to connect because every thought is creating either an electrical or a chemical signal in our brain. And those thoughts are telling your brain how to connect and how to react. And if you don't talk to your head, your head will talk to you. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a great way to put it. Yeah, and it's 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 confusing to me, actually. What you said is clear. Like, I get what you're saying. I really struggle with understanding how much control I actually have and how much is 
that how much control I don't have, right? Because there's the there's sort of the the limbic system of the brain, which is I, I guess another way of saying the lizard part of your brain that's re- reactive. In other words, it's the part that keeps us alive. And the, then there's that's the, that's the brainstem, the lizard. Okay. The limbic system is your emotional brain. Ah, okay, okay. So the brainstem is the lizard brain, and then the limbic system is more your emotional brain. And yes. so if the lizard brain is freaking out, then your emotional brain will freak out. Yes, right. and okay. those happen in milliseconds. Milliseconds, okay. And so the part that's confusing to me is, is the thoughts um, and beliefs um, and how... When a thought comes into my mind, for example, um, maybe it's a sad thought. And, you know, of somebody that's not very empathetic, if I'm feeling sad, they may say something like, well, you know, don't feel sad, feel happy. <laughs> you know, I'm like, well, well wait a minute. I, I don't know if I can, th- I don't feel like, for example, that I could think my way out of sadness. And I think what you're saying is that you, you can. You can. Now, of course, there are people that are clinically depressed. That's something different. There's a, I, there's a difference between, between being depressed and depression. Those are two very different things. Okay. And clinical depression is, is a chemical problem in the brain. Your brain's not producing enough serotonin or, or dopamine. But most people go through phases where they are depressed after a divorce, after a death, things like that. That is the part you can control. So we all have bad thoughts, negative thoughts, sad thoughts all all the time. And we just go with it. And I did for 49 years. If I'm sad, I act sad. If I'm happy, I act happy. I had no idea I could control that. But then I remember our professor saying, Imagine the person you admire the most in the world and you were in a moment of rage and you were mad and you were saying stuff and being ugly and they walked in. You could instantly shut it down because that's someone you admire, respect. Same way, you know, my mom, we used to fight on the way to church and the minute we walked in, the preacher saw us and we, oh, hello, good morning. You know, we'd shut it down. <laughs> so if that ability is there in those instances, it's also there for us. You don't have to wait till the person you admire is there. You just have to talk to your brain. And awareness is the number one key because that comes from the lizard brain. Your lizard brain will react thinking you're in danger, like fear of failure. Your your lizard brain cannot think, but it learns. And so it can't think that fear of failure is different than fear of a lion in my backyard. It just knows fear. So it starts telling your emotional brain, run, be scared, watch out, you're in danger. But when you take over and go, oh my gosh, I'm aware that I'm being fearful. And if you name your emotion, that's the first thing you need to do because that calls your brain back over to the cognitive area. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm jealous. I'm jealous right now. And it's creating a feeling of fear because I think she's got something I don't have. And anytime you move the blood flow from the emotional area back to the prefrontal cortex, you are telling your lizard brain, I've got this. You don't have to take care of me anymore. I'll take care of myself. 
And I literally talk to myself all day long. And I take that, that little phrase to heart. If you don't talk to your head, your head will talk to you. And it will tell you you're in danger. You have to hate her. She's getting things you're not getting. Or, oh, your boss doesn't like you. You've got to, you know, look, look at the way he looks at you. And if you think, you know what, maybe he didn't see me. But you've got to tell your brain to take over or the lizard and the limbic system will take you down. There's a ton of value um, and, and what you were saying, um, when you talk about naming emotion, uh, when the, I guess the lizard brain has a response to an exterior, uh, stimulus, right? Then it goes into the limbic system, which is your emotional part. When those sort of manifest, being able to name those emotions is is a is a skill really it's it's yeah. it's a, something that i've had to learn i've actually been working on that for the last 5 or 6 years of naming emotion because i've found that being aware of the emotion actually uh disables or it doesn't maybe disable it 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 sort of blurs out a lot of the uh power that emotion has over me because of what you described. It's so interesting the way you said it. You're telling your lizard brain, hey, I've got this. Uh Okay. Don't have to. Wow. What a bottle of energy Stacey Danford is. Uh, Super fun talking with her every time Uh, and learning about the brain. It's one of the things I'm most curious about uh, because ultimately our brain is just a dumb dog that can – take commands. Um, but it can also take over if you are not careful. Uh, so I was super happy to have such a cool conversation with Stacy and you can find her at the grateful brain.com is where you can get more about, um, about, uh, what we talked about. So my next and final segment here, um, is from my spiritual director, uh, Dr. Ted Kitchens. Um, he has been my spiritual director for over 20 years and he has really taken the complicated and mysterious Bible, uh, for me and given it uh, life by distilling these really incredible, useful elements and giving them handles for me to hold on to and use on a Monday morning. Uh, he's given me some incredible tools for my tool belt um, to live my life. So enjoy this last and final segment of uh, of this year's 2020 uh, Best Of uh, with Ted Kitchens. Well, um, as a as a business builder, um, I often struggle with my competitive nature. Um, I love winning. Um, it it feels good to me to um, to gut the competition, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I, I just a a quick answer would be fine. But how do I foster a healthy competitive spirit? Um, that isn't harsh or mean, but also challenges the status quo. Well, the first thing I think of is win-win. Hmm. Uh, when you're 
in your business, uh, you've got to win. You got to you got to pay the bills. It's you got to have resources. But is the customer winning? Are they getting a good product? Is mm-hmm. it really worth its value? Uh, so when it comes to competition, I think you do the best you can. You do it with excellence, but you think in the terms of win-win. And by the way, just just along those lines, we as often as businessmen and women fear other companies, and they take part of our part of our uh, base and all that kind of thing. I get all that, but you know what? I learned years ago. Uh, I remember when Fellowship Bible Church, Ed Young Jr.'s church, moved out by Montgomery Ward's Mall. And they bought a big warehouse over there and started church. I remember thinking to myself, this has been 15 years ago. Oh, man, that's a big gorilla out of Dallas, uh, Irving, and they're going to just gut our church. Mm. And the truth is, Craig, we grew more rapidly, and so did they. Mm. So often, stop your fears. Just mm. settle into what whatever you're building, making, selling, whatever your, your calling is, and do it with the with excellence and, and and try to get a win-win on both sides of the ledger, and your business will grow. I love it. Wow, that's that's just great. Um, you know, I I love I love a growing business very much. I love to oh, match. I, I mean, I love to match the gas in, in area every area of my life really. Um, and one of the things, and I, I caution myself to to keep this from becoming a personal coaching session here, but. Uh, I really struggle, um, Ted, balancing self-sufficiency and faith Um, because my understanding of the Bible is that God is not going to do anything for me that I can do for myself. Um, So, yeah, so I carry on just mashing the gas uh, and basically repeat this mantra in my mind, Craig love God, and do what you want. Well, the problem is, is that what I want is often not what God wants. Can you speak to this this tension that I'm feeling? Yeah, of course. Well, the love of God is, is the highest priority. But I, I think, you know, and I, I've been in business myself. I've told you that. You know that. Um, I always saw my work in the marketplace and also in the church as a partnership. And so God's given me the gifts. He's, he's put people around me that teach me to do this better. That's his role. I've, he has actually blessed my life financially at times that I should, I didn't deserve it. I mean, he, he showed up as a partner and put something on the table. There are other times when I failed at something but it turned out to be, as Romans eight twenty eight says, good for me. All things work together for good. If you love the Lord, I think it's about a partnership where you bring on a Monday morning, your gift mix, your education, your skill level. And you say, Lord, now I want to move forward today. I want to make money. I want to take care of my family. I want to be, I have a good reputation in the community, but I know none of that can happen unless you go before me. You open up the pathways. Give me opportunities. Help me find things that I can buy and sell that will help my employees and our company on the bottom line. I, I think God is not not opposed to, to uh, in fact, I'm a big capitalist, but, but you understand I'm a capitalist only because I believe in the faith, because it's, it's, Christi- it's the Judeo-Christian ethic that holds capitalism together. Otherwise, it becomes rampant, crazy greed, etc. cetera. 
which is what a lot of the world sees anyway. So back to that whole idea of, of business, I'm, see it as a partnership with God. Pray in the mornings for your company. When you get your team together, if you have a faith-based team, pray about it and, ask, and just see where God, God, he'll open up pathways and it'll shock you. And he'll sometimes close doors. I've got friend. I've got a friend years ago was going to this big real estate deal that some guy talked him into and his, he kept praying about it and praying about it. And he had the money to do it. And he was going to make a whole bunch of money. He went home one night and his wife said, he told his wife about it, which is sometimes a big mistake. <laughs> and he, he, she said, you're not going to do that. That doesn't sound right to me. And, and uh, so he didn't. And you know what? Everybody involved in it went to prison except him because he backed out of it. And he would tell you to this day, it was because God used my wife. He partnered through her, you know, kind of Pilate's wife thing, have nothing to do with this man in the gospels. That's what Pilate's wife said to Pilate before he, you know, turned Jesus over to the Jews for crucifixion. But anyway, the bottom line is partnership. I think partnership is the key and see your work. Uh, Partnership's a hard thing. I have a partner. I think you've got a partner. Um, I'll, I always tell young men and women, don't partner unless you have to, unless you can. And, 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 and the whole idea of partnership, because sometimes you think you, there's so many decisions have to be made with a partner that sometimes are at odds and it, it can be difficult deep inside you to do it. I've had a partner for 42 years. I have some real estate holdings. I was in business before I, we started the church, before the church came to the church. And so, uh, but he, he, I love him. We do not always agree. We get along because we highly respect each other. We know we're both totally honest, the best we can. We know God's, God's blessed our partnership, even when sometimes inside we didn't agree on the colors of this or purchase of that or, or how much money to invest in this or that. Partnerships are hard. I tell young men and women, if you can stay out of a partnership, you can financially do that. Unless this person brings some real needed assets to that partnership, do it alone, do it alone. Uh, but partnering with God, how do you lose? I mean, right. he, he, for you in the process. Yeah. Well, you know, my experience with my partnership with Lee, we've been partners for almost 20 years. It's like a second marriage. It's really freaking yeah. hard. I mean, we've, uh, it's, it's just like, it's wonderful uh, because there's trust um, yes. that, and, it has to be. and there's no crossover in ability. Um, and you know, it's, uh, it has just been, uh, well, let we, we, let's just say we've really sharpened each other a lot. Like it's, yeah, it's just with my partnership too, but let me tell you how you live with a partnership. And I think this is really important at times when you're frustrated with it, you stop and you sit down and you say, what has my partner brought to the table? I don't mean money. I mean, personal things to your life. Mm. Like because of his presence, you're free to be with the family on some weekends because of her presence. You're able to do this or that. Like with my partner, my children live real close to me, 280 yards from me across the valley. I live in the country. It's because my partner saw this property way back when and loved me enough to say, hey, you need to get on that right now. And he not only said that, he went and got it himself. So every time I get angry at him because he, he's let something slide or I'm a details guy, he's not, that part of that marriage thing, I stop and say to myself, what has he done in my life that's made my life so much richer? And it's usually has nothing to do with money. 
I love it. That's so wise. I, I mean, that's see. so it's a, it's, it's, it's just really focusing on the things that you're thankful for, which with Lee, you know, when, when I get ticked off at, at him, um, it's easy for that stuff to just get trumped and thrown away. Um, but at the, at the end of the day, you're right. If I shift my thinking and think, Oh my gosh, cause I couldn't have done it without him. I'd have run it into the, I'd have run our companies into the ground years ago if it wasn't for his ability to keep track of the details and just, you know, I mean, there's there's something there. Yeah, for sure. Well, um, I, we're running out of time and I, but my, but the last thing I wanted to talk about was politics in the church. And, um, I'm, I'm conflicted because I'm a little bit frustrated that the church in general, I'm not talking about Christ Chapel, the church in general is silent about politics. And so what is what keeps the church from being bold and endorsing a candidate that a candidate that aligns with Bible the Bible's teaching. Um the problem is obviously is maybe maybe the best way to state it is the best candidate because you know I I voted for Trump but I had to hold my nose to do it. Um but what I really did was I voted against Biden. Because as I understand the Bible, I'm like, Trump's the better choice. But I don't yeah. like the guy. He's a pompous yeah. middle fool. schooler. <laughs> but, I, but, you know, it's like, ah. So, but I want to understand, why is the church quiet about this? Well, some, some aren't. And, of course, probably most are. Um, it's a tough deal. This particular cycle has been really tough. But here's the answer. What is the role of the church on the earth? It, it, the role of the church on the earth is to preach Jesus, to preach the gospel. And historically, churches who have drifted away from that and stopped making personal spiritual growth and discipleship highest priority, the gospel from the pulpit highest priority, the teaching, the, the, the community, the family part of what a church is. The word ecclesia means gathering. That's the problem with the COVID deal today. We're not gathered. So the church itself, by very definition, is not meeting. So what happens is when a when a pastor gets up front and he says, vote, you need to vote for, which there are pastors in the country are doing this. Uh, God bless them. I'm not trying to be critical of them. I'm just telling you, most churches don't do that. It's because um, the next thing you find yourself doing is becoming a church that that is political and not focused on the kingdom issues like the Savior himself. Cycles come and go. Whoever wins this election is going to be gone in four years. And there's another one, and there's another one. What the church needs to do is teach biblical principles uh, of what what a Christian should be and do in society, how we should be salt and light, and then challenge us to to embrace our God-given responsibility to vote, Based on those, on whatever platforms each of these particular uh, political parties have. So uh, the bottom line is, there are churches in the city of Fort Worth right now that are dead, and they're dead, Craig, because years ago they decided the most important thing for them was to feed the poor and needy. It was. I, I can think of a church now. I won't use, of course, their name, but they take a they do a fantastic coat drive every winter for the kids in the city who don't have coats. Wonderful deal but they're not preaching the gospel at all. So what they become a church that's the hands of Jesus in the community, 
but there's no gospel appeal. There's no soul saving. There's no, no spiritual stuff. So the church pretty soon becomes a, a, a cultural, uh, a, a social kind of, uh, oh, I don't know, movement and not really the, the, the Jesus and his kingdom. Mm-hmm. That happens so easily. By the way, you have people sitting in the pews every week, even at our church, who don't agree with everybody else's political position. So you get up and you talk about vote for this candidate. That individual who maybe really needed Jesus is not coming back. Uh, the churches who stand up and say vote for this candidate, that that whole church is going to become only that political party. And then when that political party's gone, what are you doing? Every Sunday you're trying to get everybody to come back to center and believe in that particular platform rather than saying Jesus is king here. Mm. Need to vote? Yeah. Do we need to be educated? Yes. The church should provide that information, handouts. Here's what these candidates believe in and don't believe in. Here's their voting record. But when the church becomes, here's how we change culture, changing hearts. When you change a heart, Craig and Jen Couch, they, they want to go out and vote for the right candidate. Even they they have to hold their nose while they do it. They know at the end of the day, and I have to do, hold my nose. At the end of the day, the, the there's religious freedom. The family is protected, right? And uh, the whole this gender issues are put back in balance. But if we stand up every week and talk about those things, soon Jesus is obscure and the heart change part is gone. That's what's happened to the American church. The big C today is not preaching the gospel from the pulpit. Well, folks, that wraps up our show for this week. If you found this interview helpful and would like to get pearls of wisdom that I've gathered along the way, go to TrueGritPodcast.com and subscribe to the True Grit blog. You will get short, helpful emails written by yours truly. Included in these posts, you will also get the show notes with links to books, articles, and other cool things I run across. Thanks, as always, for listening to the True Grit Podcast, where we believe that personal growth and helping each other solve important problems is the best way to make the world a better place. And don't forget, building a company and a life of meaning takes true grit. True grit.